from InsureTech Ireland. This is InsureTech Radio. I'm Connor Sweetman. This week's guest is Pedro Ethica Serrano of Grand Thornton, Ireland. Welcome to InsureTech Radio. I'm Connor Sweetman, and this week's guest is... Well, my name is Pedro Ethica Serrano, and uh, I work for Grant Thornton in Ireland, where I lead the actuarial and data analytics team. Welcome to InsureTech Radio. Thank you. Glad to be here. So you were just about to tell me the story of the very first InsureTech Ireland meetup, where you were the first speaker. So what was your talk about? (laughs) Well, it's something I'm always uh, proud to claim, because... uh, (laughs) You know, it, it feels. I remember at the time when Jerry and Stan were organizing it, and they, they were asking for for people to help and give talks. And we thought at the time it was going to be just five or six people, like us, and, and we were gladly shocked to see that, that there was a bigger audience. Uh, the talk at the time I gave was uh, focused on uh, on a cancellation uh, insurance for airlines. It was um, it was a time where there were quite a few uh, events of flight disruption. And the airlines were being badly hit, mm. and I, I realized that the, although there are multiple policies that cover parts of the different uh, events, there wasn't really one policy that said, "Look, no matter what happens to you, if your uh, flights are disrupted and there is an economic loss, we'll get your back." So that's what I, I proposed. I, I, I hinted at how you could be modeling the pricing, how it could be based on uh, different routes and all that. Mm. So it was very. It was a twenty-minute talk only, so it was very high level. Mm. But that was uh, that was my my great idea. Okay. And so, like, where does insure tech come in in the say policies like like that? Because we all have, I suppose, travel policies. Uh, so, if, yeah, first of all, how is it different from how's the idea different from travel a travel policy? And then, how do you use technology to implement it? Well, the main difference is that the tra- your travel insurance covers you, the, the, any 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 risk that affects you as a traveller. And what I wanted to do with that was to cover the airline. And and that is the big difference. Yeah. There's no one really offering a, a one-stop shop to airlines in that area, saying, like, no matter what the, the reason for the cancellation is, be it the French uh, air controllers striking or um, the weather or any other thing, we'll get you covered. So at the moment, you have multiple policies for uh, business interruption, things like that. No, I, I just thought that that's not really the right thing for the customer, the, the customer being the airlines in yeah. this case. And I thought we could do better. And um, there's a lot of publicly available data in terms of flights and and the reason they get cancelled and, or, or delay them for how long. And you can even get to the reason for that. And what, so. what is the economic impact um, for us? So say you're getting the 6.30 flight, a Ryanair flight to London for some reason, oh, and there's fog and city. Um, so and say they, they can't land planes for that morning. So what is the economic impact? Well, the impact is huge. When you think about the about yourself as a traveler, mm. you'll probably make a claim to your travel insurance policy. Your insurer will say that it is for the airline to cover the cost because of reasons, mm. and, and the airline will have to give you a few hundred euros. Well, they'll have to do that for every single person in the plane, for every plane that was grounded. That's a lot of money. Mm. And when you put all those many events throughout the year together, we're talking of billions of euros. So it, it is a very significant cost for airlines. Mm. And um, and I think, like, from, from a, an insurance point of view, you would always know your exposure at any time. The airline can share the details of how many passengers they have at every single time. So you could monitor uh, what the likely cost would be. And, you know, the odds of... Um, of, of flights being cancelled in different routes because you, you can look at historical patterns mm. to see how it's been changing. You can look at the, um, the effect a, a specific airport has because it is big, it is busy, it is old, that type of thing. So uh, I thought there was actually a lot of information already out there that could uh, could um, enable very sophisticated analysis of the risk and yeah. very sophisticated dynamic pricing. And with, uh, with the use of, of technology and APIs, it could pretty much be on the fly. And is that something that airlines kind of work into their uh, just business as usual costs? Do you know, or is this just to just take it on the chain? How do they think about it? Because if it's billions, surely they think about it. Well, I I, I don't know in detail yeah. how um, how they deal with that, but I'm sure they're taking it on the chain in one way or another. Yeah. And yeah, surely they they put it 
somehow in their pricing there is an allowance for cost other than the usual cost. Yeah. But um, I do think there is probably a better way to deal with that. In addition, you could you could even uh, add another layer of customer service to that and say, well, I know the airport where these things happen more often, and we could have a team on the ground that provides service to stranded passengers. And, and you know those airports are going to have issues all the time. Maybe not every day, but very often. And you could have a team that, that will, um, will, will already know in advance. Before even the passengers, like, well, this flight is cancelled. The passengers don't know yet, but we know. The flight is cancelled. So let's start looking for a hotel for these people. Let's start looking for, for some food if they need or some refreshments because they're going to be waiting for a while. That type of thing, you could already be working on that even before the passengers know that, that his flight has been cancelled. Yeah, and actually that turns in turn then makes it a competitive advantage because if you are, say, a business traveller travelling maybe you know, a couple of times a week, like you will pay the extra hundred quid for for that uh, to cover the uncertainty, you know, of that. Um, and how how would you apply technology? So other than a normal kind of traditional underwriting, uh, where you would say use actuaries and stuff um, back at, at home office, how would you use technology to either sell or price this? It'd be for the live uh, feeding of of information and how you deal with that. Uh, normally or traditionally, you would just have a a pricing exercise at some point could it be annual, quarterly, monthly, you name it. But it'd be on a regular schedule. But uh, that be that would set you the price for the for the foreseeable future. It'd be based on, uh, on past events. Well, right now we can do better than that with technology. In fact, the reason many insurance companies still work on that basis is because uh, they haven't really caught up with technology. They could be doing better. And the, the skills are there. It's just they don't have the, the technology enabling the the data feeds and the and the repricing quickly enough. So you, you just be looking at that real life uh, information from the airlines as to how many passengers are signing up to each flight, what the weather forecasts are for for particular uh, routes, and not one person could do that manually. So you have to automate all that, and you need to automate it. Mm. And when you automate it, not only you, you manage to, to achieve something that was impossible before, but also you can uh, keep your cost cheap. So you could provide a, an insurance offering that is as cheap as it can possibly be. You're really pricing purely the, the insurance risk, mm. and the expenses are as low as, uh, as you can let them be. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Were you sitting in an airport when you thought of that at the time? I'm going to tell you a lie, but it's a great story. So <laughs> the answer is no, not really. But shortly after I had been thinking about this, yeah. I saw myself in, a, in, in that situation. I traveled to London with, with my family. It was just myself, my wife, and my, my son, who was 18 months at the time. We were just spending the weekend in London, seeing some friends, and then flying back. Well, um, there was a time where the, the, our flight was, I think it was at 1, 1 p.m., and one hour before that, a plane burst a tire, taking off. So that they, they had to close the runway, clear all debris and that. But you can imagine, it's a huge impact on all the flights that were supposed to, to take off at the time. So our flight was delayed. And then it was delayed again, and then it was delayed again, and, and so on, until it was cancelled. So by the time it was cancelled, it was uh, 10 p.m. And we had been on a merry-go-round around the airport. Now you're going to board. Oh, no, it's been cancelled. Now you're going to board again. It's been cancelled again. And I remember at the time, no one would offer you any refreshments or anything. There was no place to, to sit down because the whole airport was crowded and collapsed. Mm-hmm. And by the time it was 10 p.m., I said, okay, we're not flying today. I need a hotel for my family. Uh, well, the staff at the airport could not book me a hotel because they were already fully booked. So I was pretty much told, yeah. you're on your own. Yeah. And, and the airline would not book me a flight on its own airline yeah. for the following day. So I had to do it all myself. And, and to add uh, to the problems... Uh, you're there with a toddler, yeah, and yeah. you didn't pack everything you needed for yeah. for an extended stay just for your weekend. And, and my son was on medication, yeah. and because of um, travel restriction with liquids, we had just brought the bare minimum yeah. that we needed. And, and, and the medication creates an addiction on the child, mm-hmm. <laughs> so you don't want to be dealing with the lack of medication and the withdrawal symptoms. So you, you were there in a in a fairly stressful situation, and you were on your own. Perfect. And exactly, and I thought, well. Obviously, this is not pleasant for the airline because I am going to complain very angrily. And so everybody else that was affected. But also, I'm on my own now here and I have to deal with everything. Mm-hmm. Surely we can do better than this. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, well, I think that fed a lot into the, the, the idea. Yeah. 
and, and, and I could see a lot of potential, but it never took wings from there. Yeah. Now I don't lose hope, though. I, I do hope that somebody will, will take on that. And, uh, you have no interest in just doing it yourself? Well, it, it's, it's an area I feel very passionately about. Yeah. But um, now leading the, the Grand Thornton team <laughs> is already an all-time-consuming eh? <laughs> <laughs> effort, so I, I don't have a lot of time to explore that at the moment. But yeah, someday. Someday. Um, so you've been in an actuary for some time and in insurance. Um, is it life and then general, or has it always been both? It has always been both, yeah. and uh, that is quite often the case uh, for actuaries in, mm-hmm. in the continent. Mm-hmm. We, we don't normally specialize as much as you do here or, or in the UK. Like You could specialize a uh, non-life, but even with that, you'd still be involved in pricing and reserving, mm-hmm. maybe capital modeling, whereas here you, you might be a reserving actuary, and that's it. You know. Yeah. And uh, when did the, the term insurtech kind of start creeping into into your orbit? When did you first kind of hear about that? I think that was when I was still working um, for Aviva quite a few years ago, and, and Solvency 2 was was about to become a reality. And I had already been working on getting the, our were everything ready for Solvency 2 and I remember thinking at the time I was already tired of Solvency 2 and I had not even started so well I started looking for something else just to keep me mentally uh, intellectually engaged and I came across data analytics I realized it was a very familiar field because my background before becoming an actuary was in statistics and operations research so there were a lot of uh, of similar concepts similar approaches but very quickly, um, you realize that the companies that were adopting data analytics and insurance were startups. And that's how the InsurTech came up. Mm. And um, I, I found that very interesting. And you could see how a lot of things that the, my, my colleagues in, in an insurance company thought that was impossible. Like, it is very possible. Mm. It is happening right now. And, and I can point that, that companies doing it and people working on it. And you could see that the, the possibilities not only were there, they were actually happening. Mm. But somehow the industry was, was lagging behind. And, and for, for many reasons that you can understand, you cannot avoid solvency too. Yeah. The same way you cannot avoid IFRS 17 right now. Yeah. And so you have to focus on delivering those. But what is being left behind is a price you might not be able to afford in the near future. Yes. So the startups, the data analytics startups, were they kind of trying to start... Um, I guess was smarter insurance companies, or were they just trying to? Are they were they trying to sell their products or services to insurance companies, or what kind of businesses were they at the time? Well, at the time, it was more of the second. Uh, I don't think anyone was really thinking of, of of hitting an insurance company with the elbow and taking their place. It was more about the complementary services, and well, you're busy doing what you are good at, but we're very good at something else, which is maybe the distribution, mm-hmm. uh, dealing with the customer. Because let's face it, the insurance industry doesn't have a great reputation in terms of customer service and, and, and keeping customers happy. Mm. And many of the startups found a way to do that better, more efficiently. So you, they could provide a better service at a much cheaper, much cheaper cost, which I thought that was a win-win for everybody. And, and that was mostly the, the focus at the time. Yeah. And so how do you define InsurTech? Well, I'd say InsurTech is just doing things differently to what it is at the moment. So there's a huge focus on technology, but um, I don't think technology is the only way to innovate. Mm. Just doing things differently is already enough. I remember uh, looking at Lemonade, and it's a fantastic case, and it's no secret that I I really admire the model and what they're doing. Mm. And everybody focuses on technology, how, for example, when you make a claim, they run many different uh, fraud detection algorithms, and that that allows them to pay your claim within seconds if there is nothing uh, to investigate. Mm. Well, you could have companies in Scandinavia that were already doing that. Instead of using technology, they say, well, if the cost is below this number, just pay. Mm. So they achieve the same yeah. by simply changing their processes. Yeah. It's not fancy. <laughs> exactly, but it's not fancy. But from my point of view, if it is working, it is innovation. It, yeah. is, it is doing things differently. And, and, and if they continue doing it, it's working then. Yeah, because I wonder sometimes is you know we we have this term insuretech and it's uh, it's great for you know naming podcasts for example, <laughs> um, but I wonder like does it just in ten years time is it just insurance or is insuretech does that always have to be that kind of um, 
uh, early adoption of kind of new things, whether they be ideas or um, or actual technology? Like, what, what are your thoughts on? Do you think that term will disappear over time? I think it'll take a long time for the term to disappear. Mm. It's simply because it will evoke mm. uh, a nice part of the world. Want to remember, you know, the time when when there was the, the frontier, like the wild west of insurance, yeah. and, and 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 people with great ideas could achieve a lot. Yeah. It'll essentially boil down to innovation, yeah. and and I think that that, will, that has to be a core part of any business, mm. not just insurance. So I think the the buzzword will still be around, but it won't have the same meaning that it has right now. Yeah, yeah. I suppose because it's kind of new now. Yeah. Uh, another kind of t- term I hear a lot uh, is uh, AI, artificial intelligence. I know you're involved in thinking about uh, ethics in a- AI specifically how they relate to insurance but I thought we might just define a couple of terms before we kind of get into the weeds a bit so like so like in it how would you describe or how would you uh, yeah how would you describe AI to your grandmother like very simply what is it well my grandma would definitely not want me to talk about that but <laughs> <laughs> I, I would say it's a simply um, using using clever models yeah. to apply sophisticated rules to, uh, to come out or help you make decisions or how to make those decisions. Mm. Now, when I say clever models, those models don't need to be very, very clever. But uh, there is a, there's an ongoing word of word as to what the, what the boundaries are between statistics, data science, machine learning, AI. I, t- I try to not pay too much attention to that and focus on, okay, what, what are you achieving? What are you trying to do and how? Mm. And that's, that's the important part. And in my experience, when it comes to, to the application of those techniques in the business world and, and when reality, when, when regulation comes, no one will care what the label is. They'll care what, what is your model doing mm. and, and what are the consequences regardless of, of whether it is machine learning, artificial intelligence or just a simple statistical regression. So well, what's the difference between machine learning and artificial intelligence? I would say it's probably the the way it is implemented mm-hmm. and, and the application. If you, if you if you have a, I actually wouldn't really try to to try to to put the boundary or, or to say well this is artificial intelligence machine learning. Mm-hmm. It's it's a minefield, yeah. and then, yeah, I don't think you could probably get the same answer from three different people. Yeah, because they seem to be not used interchangeably but certainly in the same sentence a lot you know people will just group them together you know in fact well just going back to um, the work I'm doing I'm in the expert group with IOPA Mm. we say ethics in AI but that that's a short way to describe what is a much longer sentence for the for the name which would be uh, business digital analytics or Mm big data analytics, things like that. Mm. It's just well acknowledged that if you get bogged down in definitions, you don't really make progress. So we just call it ethics in AI. Yeah. And that covers any sophisticated model you have, statistical, machine learning, data science, deep learning, you name it. It doesn't matter. Okay. All that has to have an ethical component there. Okay, well, that's that, okay. that's really good for the purpose of our conversation. Let's just kind of take AI as an umbrella term. And... Uh, so what are the issues that you're looking at um, with AI, specifically with regards to insurance? Well, the, it, it's mostly about the outcomes mm-hmm. of, of what you do with, the, with those models. So um, if, if, if you think about the, the recent part, there have been quite a number of scandals about the things in, in where uh, AI uh, produced the... Um, not very nice outcomes, or it was used with uh, with not very ethical purposes. What example? Well, Cambridge Analytica would okay. come to mind, mm-hmm. but also um, there just seemed to be a scandal all the time about Google's image recognition uh, mistaking one thing for another, mm-hmm. things like that. Well, obviously, the, that is not nice, but at the same time, that's the consequences of being on the fringes of, um, of what innovation is. Mm-hmm. Like, no one can foresee all the potential outcomes. And yeah. sometimes the outcomes are not what you expected and they are not nice and, and we have to deal with that. But at the same time, that cannot be the world west forever because it has very significant impacts on people's lives and society in general, mm. mostly when it comes to uh, financial services. Mm. So if, if you're applying for a loan or a mortgage or insurance policy and it's denied on, on 
on thoroughly discriminatory ground, well, that has to be addressed. And if it can be addressed before it happens, even better. So I think that is the, the rationale behind the, the work we're doing with AOPA. And I'd say it's going to be a long journey because it is not an easy, an easy topic. Mm. And when you look around what's been done at the moment, there have been plenty of, um, of documents being released with um, voluntary guidance. But uh, in my experience, voluntary will not take you very far. Yeah. And no, no matter how, how well-meaning we all are in our businesses, and, but also um, the, the term ethics is, is, is very subjective to the individual. We all have a very different definition of what ethical means. Mm. So being, being quite ruthless here, a regulator is going to have to define what ethical behavior means mm. for businesses, and that's what we'll all have to comply with. Yeah, yeah. Th- that's my own view. What, what is there a range of? Because um, imagine, like, when you speak about ethics in the AI, it's not just. I would imagine you're not going to get um, the right in inverted commas solution um, by just talking to a bunch of actuaries. I'm sure you're going to need kind of a real broad range of of uh, skills and backgrounds to. And I mean, even there's, all, there's even like philosophical arguments. So, like, what, what is what, what is the kind of the skill set or the backgrounds of the people who are discussing this? Well, it's it's very varied and it has to be. Mm. So we're to, we're we're, um, we're working together with uh, with data scientists, actuaries, lawyers, mm. and pretty much the whole spectrum of people working in insurance. And and I think that's the way it has to be. We we need to to hear views from from different professions, uh, having our own views challenge, and and think long and hard about how we can overcome those uh, those challenges and what the, what the common good should be. Uh, just to give you an example, the actual profession is subject to, to very rigorous professionalism requirements and uh, ethical and professional behavior is one of them. But, for example, data scientists don't really have a professional organization like the, the actuarial profession is. Mm. So it's just down to the individual. And as I said before, each person has a different view as to what ethical behavior is. Mm. So you could argue that, well, if, if actuaries become too troublesome because they have these ideas about ethics that disagree with what the business believe ethical means, then they'll just push actuaries aside and hire their scientists with, with an ethical view closer to their own. Mm-hmm. And, well, I'm not going to say whether that's right or wrong, but that cannot be yeah. in a business environment. Like, like uh, regulators are worried that... Uh, about the, the impact in society and to individuals, and we need to come up with a common framework. Yes, yeah, so I suppose it is an opportunity then uh, for actuaries and data scientists to kind of, well, for actuaries maybe to revisit uh, and upgrade their professional standards, but also for maybe for data scientists to define w- professionalism for them. Absolutely. I think, in fact, um, it, it's, it's a very um, rewarding uh, field to be working on at the moment because. Yeah. Uh, Actuaries, we've been looking at these uh, at these topics for a long time, and so th- there is a lot we can contribute to the conversation. But um, data scientists have also been thinking about it for a while, mm. but without the, the I would say the, the guidance of, of of a profession holding your hand and telling you this the way you think of things, mm. that's, that's sometimes good because they come up with very creative ways to address the same issues, mm. and that's that's something you want to hear about. So they might have more expertise in, in, in the hardcore fields of machine learning, but actually have more experience in looking at the, at the ethical and professional consequences of what we do. So the, the conversation is very rich, mm. very, very interesting. Uh, and I think, I think all that is, is going to come up with, uh, with good outcomes. It's just it's going to take a while. Mm. Not everybody will be happy, mm. but they... I do believe that it'll, it'll contribute to the greater good, and, and society will be a, a better place after all this. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned like it's good for having your own views challenged. Uh, so, like, what have you changed your mind about recently, or, or have you adapted your thinking at all on any particular issue? Well, yes, and my friends will probably tell you I, I often disagree with myself three months ago, <laughs> like that, which I think is actually a good thing. Yeah. And um, no, having having to listen to. Uh, to other uh, professionals looking at the same topic as you but from different angles is very, mm-hmm. uh, very rewarding I remember um, 
an anecdote. I was I was chatting with somebody uh, who come from a, a different country, and they they were addressing the the, the life consequences of um, that the insurance could have on an individual. They say, well, if if you cannot afford uh, motor insurance, that could impact your possibilities to get a job, and that could put you in state benefits for for life because you cannot just get a new job because you cannot drive to the new workplace things like that. But then I pointed out, well, but if we're looking at young drivers. Statistically, they are more dangerous than 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 more experienced drivers, and so is it fair to to reduce their premiums so that they can afford it when when you're putting life at risk? Mm-hmm. Is, is that really the right thing to do? Is ethical? I'm not saying you should go one way or another, mm-hmm. but it's not that simple as saying everybody should be able to afford motor insurance. Mm-hmm. Really, like, yeah, well, is, is that really right? And, and there was a very good challenging. Conversation there because because this person was coming up with different arguments and it, it really makes you think about it and yeah. and well at some point how how can we address all these things can we really address all these things at the same time yeah or or are we going to have to say well there's going to be a one thing that well we'll have yeah. to live with it what I think about that is like yeah my per- the person doesn't have the right necessarily to uh, to own a car um, but they certainly have the right to go wherever they want so maybe a uh, so how are they going to get the job interview? Maybe it's uh, on a bus, for example. Uh, do, do they actually need a car? But I, I would point out that the, I grew up in Madrid. So yeah. if you say, I cannot get a job because I don't, I cannot afford motor insurance, no one would believe you. There's fantastic public transport. You can go nearly everywhere by yeah. public transport. Now, if you live in rural Donegal, that's an entirely different thing. Yeah. And it is true. If you, don't have a car, if you cannot drive a car, you cannot get a job. So... Yeah. And I don't know in other countries, in, in Spain, the Constitution would say you have the right to a job. Mm. So if your only way to get a job is having motor insurance, and motor insurers are not giving you insurance, well, they are infringing in your constitutional rights. So that would be a way to look at it. So it, yeah. it, it's a very complex situation. Suddenly you realize this, this thing is exploding outside of what we thought it was. Yeah, and but I wonder, so if, well, if, uh, let's say, it's compulsory insurance like motor, and the government says that, but uh, it says that you must have motor insurance if you want to drive a car, mm. but you're, say, an uninsurable uh, risk. Should it be then thought of the same way, say, the UK government thinks of terrorism or flood uh, in some parts of the country? Um, should there be, like, a young driver's pool? I'd say the government would probably lose a bit of money on that, but yeah. uh, what are your thoughts? Well, I, I, I agree with you on that, and um, I think each, each country has to... Um, to decide how they want to address those those topics, I know Europe is trying to uh, to harmonise how it is done yeah. across the EU. There's been a study recently as to how those uh, compensation schemes or those uh, those funds are operating in different countries. And uh, I I remember they mentioned a few. Some in France, Spain is is another example. But for those to work, the state cannot pick up the tab on the batteries only because is not really right. That that's not mm-hmm. going to be sustainable. So I remember, um, I know, I know. Well, like you can see how it's been done in the in the UK for flood risk with, with setting up flood free and all this. In Spain, it was done very differently. The, the state realized, well, there are some parts of Spain that are liable to to flood, and every five years it's going to be a disaster, and those people will never be able to afford insurance. So they imposed the levy on every insurance policy. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny amount for you to pay, but in aggregate, it's a considerable fund. But then the state covers not only that region, but the entire of Spain. Because otherwise you have insurance companies going to the, the areas where the, the good risk is and leaving the bad risk alone, and then it's just for the government to pay the tab. And they said, no, that's not going to be. This has to be self-funded, uh, sustainable. So they just took the entire market for themselves. I think some countries would not like that approach. But, well, it's up to them to decide how, how they want to, to do it. Mm. And does that mean that... Uh, the peril of flood isn't actually on uh, Spanish commercial policies. It's all insured by the government, or how, how does that actually work in practice? I would not be able to tell you all the detail, but yeah. but yeah, like uh, there is a there is a, a fund. It's well, it's a company called the Consorcio de Compensación de Seguros, which is essentially that just to cover risks that nobody else wanted to cover. Yeah. Terrorism was a good example back in the days when when it was a more prevalent peril in Spain. Yeah. So no insurance company would cover that in Spain. Yeah. So the state had to, to provide something. Yeah, fascinating. Um, so, like, EOPA seems like a fairly um, 
a very challenging kind of uh, idea, generally kind of har- trying to harmonize uh, the regulations across how many, how many states? Not too many. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, 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 when I say too many, what I mean is that they, they bring in so many different states yeah. with, with the, their own unique situations in the markets. It, it creates a very complex, uh, complex challenge. Can you just describe kind of broadly like, what is EOPA, what are they trying to do? Well, right now, and I'm, I'm just because um, I'm trying to to not quote anything confidential here, <laughs> but I think with the um, it's not necessarily legislation they're looking at at the moment. Like how to put it, the way the chair of the of the group put it, there's nothing set in stone, but nothing is off the table. Yeah. Right now, the the purpose of of the group I, I'm a member of is is just to to assess the situation, see see what the dangers are, what the, the opportunities are, and uh, any gaps, and, and just recommend some action. Yeah. It is more of a, trying to to have a, a debate, yeah. and then see where that debate takes you. Uh, just to give you an example, everybody in Europe agrees this is a good thing. Yeah. Data analytics is a good thing, and there's no way of stopping it. Even if they wanted to, which they don't want to, but this is a good thing. We just want to make sure. It is channeled in a way that is sustainable for businesses, sustainable for a market, and it contributes to the greater good, good customer outcomes as well. That's all. That's all we're trying to do. Cool. Well, let's talk about. It. We kind of focus a little bit on some of the challenges. Like, what are what do you see as the the big opportunities? Well, I would say the main, the big opportunities is just providing a, a better service to customers, mm. and maybe being able to provide insurance to, um, to to segments of the market that didn't really have an adequate offering in the past. Uh, more personalized customer service, uh, the use of technology to reduce cost as well, therefore providing cheaper insurance. All those things are, are, are great benefits to, to, to the market and society in general. A term I heard, um, right, reading an article um, the other day about the personality of AI, and they're talking about, and they're talking about this idea of a black box, the fact that you don't know how how the AI actually uh, gets to its outcome. Could, could you actually describe me in a bit more detail what black box means? Well, we use the term black box to, to define um, we have a system or, or a model that we know in theory how it works. We can, we can explain the mathematical rules that govern that, that model, but we cannot explain how providing one input it comes up with another output. We, we know how it works in theory, but not how it is applied in practice. Yeah. Or, or rather, it is so complicated to explain that it's as good as, as, as being unexplainable. Yeah. That, that would be an example. And that is, quite often, those are very powerful models, and, and you definitely want to make use of them. But you also have the thought of, well, how wise is it to run a business on, on models that we don't really yeah. understand that well how they are applied in practice? Yeah. Or to really understand everything that needs to be understood. How could this go wrong? And that, that's one, one of the areas we're, we're considering at the moment. We're, we're very concerned with, um, with explainability and, and transparency because, uh, you know, you don't want to be in the situation where you say, well, I'm increasing my insurance premiums by this amount. It's going to be unpopular. There's going to be public uproar, pressure on the government, and the central bank comes around saying, well, could you please let me know why these premiums have increased by so much you don't want to be there and say well because the magic black box told me so that's really not going to do mm. so um, <laughs> and also as, as a, if you're running a company y- you want to know how your model could go wrong mm. so you foresee the situation and, and when, when when it starts coming up you know you cannot rely on that model anymore yeah. and is that that seems like a a feature of AI uh, is like is there any way to work around it, or it, it just seems like that's the way it is? Or but how do you then get to that point of explainability? Well, it's a very um, hot topic for for research at the moment. Where, mm-hmm. Like everybody who's an expert in the field acknowledges that this is a challenge in some industries, mm-hmm. and that we need to to come up with better ways to explain what's happening there. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of research um, in academia being carried out at the moment to. Um, to provide explanations as to how those those models are actually working in practice, as opposed to how they work in theory. Mm. So I, I suspect that um, that the concern we have at the moment for black boxes will not really be that much at some point in the future, 
whether that is five years, ten years, I cannot tell you, but I do believe we'll get to a point where where we'll have a set of tools that will enable us to assess how, how the black box is actually working and yeah. be able to provide a, a sensible explanation to, to, to individuals. Yeah, I suppose it's, it'd probably get to the point like where we'll take it for granted the same way we take for granted when we walk into a room and we flick on the light exactly. switch. Yeah. I don't need to tell you how there's light here or, or certainly the whoever is the CEO of the electricity uh, company just need to tell you. Absolutely. The, the one thing, however, is what do we do in the meantime? Yes. And and that is where, where we're trying to, um, to, to to address at the moment. Yeah, because I assume, like, taking that example of the light switch, that probably was when it was a new technology and, say, maybe there was a lot of uh, fire starting as a result of uh, poor electrics. Yeah. You know, there probably was an issue that they needed to get to. That, that's actually a very good analogy because uh, now no one is concerned that you switch on the light and, and, and the bulbs would explode on you and, mm. and something like that. Well, that's actually where we are right now with, with AI. Mm. Could it explode on me? Could it, could, could it uh, optimize some function that gives a mathematically sensible result that is just suicide in business and maybe we don't re- realize of it until it is too late? That is what we're worried about at the moment. Mm. When you think of um, algorithmic trading, mm. well, there have been already cases like that where, where the, the, the algorithms used for automatic trading seemed very sensible until there was some combination of, of weird um, <laughs> things happening in the market that led the algorithm to to, to go haywire and, mm-hmm. and maybe buy everything or sell everything. And, well, that could be happening uh, in insurance as well if we don't, if we don't think about it. And, and insurance is too important in society yeah. and modern economy to, to, to live with that risk. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And that is that is something we can kind of forget uh, as insurance professionals. You know, I think we get bogged down in kind of the challenges and the headlines. Whereas, you know, we're talking about planes at the start of this conversation. You know, planes don't take off uh, without insurance. Buildings don't get built. Cars don't drive. You know, oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's a, it is the enabler of the economy. And uh, um, what what else in insurance aside from AI? What else is are you paying attention to at the moment? Well, at the moment, um, a very um, personal focus of mine is, is when I when I look at all these um, insert tech companies that are leveraging the data science or AI mm. to to do better in insurance. I I focus a lot on on what strategic use they're they're making of that. Is it just one particular thing, or are are you are you embedding the use of a, of AI in your in your business strategy and household mm. you see what I mean it's just you're, are you using AI as, as just like a tool mm. you know the way somebody says I use email I use AI mm. which is a part of your strategy and household how has that linked to your overall um, business goals when you say well I want to, to, to achieve growth okay how, how, how are you using AI or data science for that mm. and uh, you say I want to increase revenue how are you using AI data science for? You know what I mean. Mm, I see. What you mean. Beyond yeah. the just this is a tool that I use. Yeah. Well, is it a tool? Is it a strategy? How, how how is that embedded in your business more than just we use AI to do something clever and identify customers? Okay, why why, why that? Yeah, yeah. Is it because there was a niche or because it was part of your strategy yeah. or or you say well I want to achieve that and I just realize AI can help me yeah. with that. Are you using AI because it is cool or because it's the right tool for the job? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think definitely. I think maybe people want to set up an AI department or you know hire a couple of data scientists. Uh, and I remember even actually talking to a broker who said uh, they want to get a data guy. Yeah. And uh, I was like, "What's that? What do you mean?" But <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, you hear that a lot. And I yeah. think, for, for, from my point of view, is is more like um, AI as complex and sophisticated as it is. It is becoming increasingly commoditized. Mm. So it's going to, in some areas is already something you can bring off the shelf mm-hmm. plug and play so just using AI alone is not going to become a, a, a winning factor mm-hmm. anymore it's how you use that AI how you embed into your strategy if your strategy is good and you make good use of AI that will be a winning combination mm-hmm. as opposed to I'm going to win because I use AI and no one else does that's not going to hold for long no because people just cop on yeah and um uh, so, like, just looking at like an actuarial profession, uh, do you see 
like people say coming from universities is there still kind of the f- the the flood towards actuarial or there's more people going to data scientists is there did you see much of a trend there actually yeah, you see two contradictory things happening in a way and there are colleges that provide the degrees in actuarial sciences that fast track you through the the exams in a way so you have, you have many graduates coming out of a of college with a, with exemptions to the actual exams, so they, they can qualify as a, as a fellow very quickly. Mm. That's 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 new. Like in, in, in the history of the actual profession, that was never really there. You had to go through the exams, but that also meant that maybe you came with a different background. Mm. You were an engineer who decided to become an actuary. Mm. I think that was very good for the profession because you have people with very different backgrounds contributing with that to to the profession and and to quote the. Frank Reddington, an actuary who's only an actuary is not an actuary, because that was the case yeah. in those days. Now we're seeing a more um, actuaries start coming into the market with a very, very similar background. So there is not that variety anymore. But at the same time, you see many students who, who want to, to have some actuarial knowledge, but don't want to become a qualified actuary in the traditional sense. They want to use that to uh, to move on to other areas they find interesting, like quants work or, or data science, one of them. And I think there is a challenge for the actual profession to answer to those needs. So how can we how can we uh, help those um, actual students who want to to become data scientists? How can we help them be actually actually data scientist people? If you see what I mean? Yeah, I assume you probably uh, speak to a lot of uh, uh, younger actors or people considering going into the profession. What do you say to people who who maybe want to stand out or kind of um, they don't want to just go the traditional route? Well, I would say if that's what you want to do, by all means, do it. Mm. Um, one of the beautiful things of, of the actual profession is that it gives you a, a job where money will never be a concern. You'll always have enough. Mm. So you can afford to, to, to focus on doing what makes you happy. Mm. So if data science makes you happy, go for that. You know what I mean? So I would say if, if you are a student actuary who thinks that data science is the thing you want to do, well, do it. It's just do you encourage people to complete the exams, become a fellow, and then focus on that? Well, right now, the, the exams are not necessarily the best way for you to, to become a a data scientist. In, in fact, that might mean just you drop out the exams and, <laughs> and you do something else. But at the same time, we are working in the actual profession um, to try to um, to help those students to, to find the profession relevant to them. Mm. So if you say, "Well, I, I, I like being an actuary and I like what it brings to to my my life," but it's not giving me enough because it's not answering my needs in terms of of, of data science. Well, we're we're working hard to address those. It's just um, as you can imagine, life is faster than than what we can do in the in the profession. But the, we're, I would say, not just uh, here in Ireland, but across the world, actual professions are really, really uh, working hard on this uh, on this topic. Yeah, uh, a close friend of mine um, uh, is an actuary. Uh, he qualified about five or six years ago. Um, but I was asking him, you know, does he have any interest in data science? And he he, he kind of thought maybe it's a bit of a a trend or a, or a fad or that's he was a bit unsure because he felt it, it it just kind of felt a bit uncertain to him is that a is that well founded or well that's that's your friend's opinion and yeah we, we can disagree Believe or, or agree I, disagree. I, oh yeah absolutely yeah. I disagree and I'll I'll tell you what's going to happen data science is going to become a tool mm. for the actual toolbox mm. just some people will specialize in data science mm. in the same way some actors specialize in pensions or motor insurance yeah. or life insurance. Yeah. But they will all have a basic knowledge of data science because it's just too useful and too good to, to ignore. Yeah. In the same way all actuaries now program, whereas decades ago an actuary was a person that was proficient in looking at the big box mm. with annuity rates. So computers became your tool. Yeah. Data science will become your tool as well. Yeah. So maybe you won't be a specialist in there. Some will. But you will definitely not ignore it. So you, you can see that there are the very senior actuaries will never see much of an impact because they are in senior positions and, and a data science thing will be another team like marketing or it's just another another uh, cog in the big machinery of the company where they work for and that's it. 
uh, the, 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 the students at the moment will never know any different because the students will be coming to the syllabus, they'll study it, and they won't understand a world without that. But the ones in the middle, some of them will, will probably see a lot of very significant change in their working lives. And you'll see, and you already see this in, um, in some countries where, where you used to have a team of four pricing actuaries, now you have two actuaries and two data scientists. So um, actuaries that do not have a, a working knowledge of, of the basics of data science or machine learning couldn't have been relegated to uh, regulatory tasks. And if they're f- happy with that, that's fantastic. Mm. But if they're not, well, you know, m- my view is you better become part of the change than be changed with nothing, with no word of it. Yeah, uh, that, that's, that aligns with my uh, opinion on, on on underwriting. I suppose the, the, the traditional insurance professions of, like, say, underwriting claims broking, um, yeah, they're kind of uh, uh, embrace uh, or just prepare to be irrelevant, I suppose. Mm. Um uh, so, like, what what do you think? How do you think the the roles of uh, those kind of frontline professions of broking and um, underwriting will change over with this uh, kind of advance in insure tech? I think they they'll become uh, more immediate, more fast moving, mm. and uh, they'll have access to a lot more data. They'll be able to to analyze more information um, faster and give a have a better more complete knowledge of their customers. I, I I used to have a lot of conversation with brokers in relation to, to the use of, of data science mm. in their uh, their work. And nearly universally, they, they push back saying, no, Pedro, this is a, a relationship-based uh, profession. It's all about creating relationships. And say, so, well, I'm not saying no to that, but mm. how, do you re- how do you conduct those... Uh, th- th- your job at the moment, like you use you use the phone, you use uh, email. It's not about meeting somebody in the pub or meeting them in the park. You know, you, you call them, you, yeah. you use email. Well, data science will be another tool like that. Yeah. It'll just give you more information faster, more insights as to what your customers need might be, how they might be better addressed. It'll just enhance what you can do rather than replace what you do. But um, I found it interesting that they saw it as, as a replacement. That AI was going to replace them. Yeah. Well, in some in some areas where where the value they provide is not really that, that, that as big as they think. Yes, that could be the case, mm-hmm. but I don't think it, it will universally replace brokers or underwriters. It'll yeah. just enhance what they do. Yeah, yeah. I think it'll. I I think ideally, the it will free up time for them to do what they're best at, and to, for them to add more value. Uh, and that's not kind of pushing paper around. If doing what you're best at is Relationships and talking to your customers, then ideally this would free up time, so you can spend seventy percent of your time with your customers. I think you can look at it the way the way the internet affected the uh, shopping around. Mm. So um, there are aggregators, mm. and a lot of people just go to these websites when they are shopping around for for insurance policies, and yet there are still brokers. Mm. They just focused on on the more complex products. Say for example here in Ireland, health insurance. Mm. It's such a complex field. That you you could really do with the help of a broker rather than to go to to the health insurance authority's website and, and try to compare all the products by yourself. There are there are thousands of them. You don't even know where to start. And then the the multiple combinations of, of benefits and whatnot is it's very confusing even for somebody like myself who worked in the topic. Mm. So let alone someone who who doesn't know anything about it. So you do need a broker. So I would say brokers will will still exist just they might be pushed out of some 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 fields because of um, of AI but at the same time you could use AI to help you come up with a good decision for your or a good recommendation for your customer mm. in a very complex setting like that yeah and I think kind of coming back to the start of our conversation also I think w- brokers and insurers will probably end up adding value in other areas of risk like you were talking about say if your client is an airline uh, and being able to um uh, help them with the economic cost of missed flights. Mm. That's something they may not have thought of. You know, it's not the, it's not like a, a whole policy or aviation yeah. liability. You know, it's 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 still risk, but we're just kind of thinking about it or approaching it with another lens. Yeah, I agree with that. I think um, there might also be opportunities that, that weren't there before. Mm. Think of um, gadget insurance. Mm. 
20 years ago no one was thinking of uh, of insuring uh, laptops or yeah. well maybe 20 years ago they were like <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'm older than I, than I think but but you see what I mean like uh, there was a point when suddenly mobile phones started coming up and they were they didn't exist before and somebody saw the opportunity to insure that because it was something people valued mm-hmm. and the same happened with, with, with laptops and then we had this idea of a gadget insurance so in, in a way um, as technology and society move on you'll see opportunities for to ensure different things and gig economy is a good example <clears throat> and you have these um, insurance companies coming up and saying well, actually I see the need uh, to, to, or, or the opportunity to ensure those things that no one thought about that before and now we can because we have the technology to do it like going back to what we spoke at the very beginning you, you could not provide an insurance quote for the, that was competitive to somebody who used their car only weekend mm. well now you can yeah because now you can reprice more often than you, you used to do in the past and, and you have access to more data that you didn't have before, more personalized data as well. Do you think... Um, I heard I read another article recently about... Uh, um, uh, I remember the quote, I'm paraphrasing, but it was something along the lines of, you know, uh, the insurance of the future won't be about kind of making customers happier necessarily it'd be about making insurance disappear so like absorbing the pro the, the risk transfer into the purchase say like of a gadget or of motor or of a plane ticket what are, what are your thoughts on on that uh yeah on the actual risk transfer just being part of other products and for insurers to be kind of invisible i i think that it is great to think that we could get to that point at some and in the future, I I don't think it is very um, it's very realistic for the sole reason that the, when, when you are purchasing a financial product such as insurance, you need to be making mm. a conscious decision, and there are regulations about it. So you'll never get to the point where um, we'll say, well, I, I just bought a, a I don't know a car, and without even knowing there was already insurance attached. Yeah, there are regulations about that. You need to know that you're purchasing insurance, yeah. and also you need to be allowed to shop around. So I don't think it'll, it'll be as smoothless as that, but I think it is a great aspiration to work towards too. That, that the, the experience is so smooth that it feels like that. You see what I mean? Yeah. I don't think it'll become invisible, but we should work towards um, achieving a, a state of play where it is really easy. It is really. Um, frictionless mm. and, and customers can, can have all the information in front of them or the relevant information so they can make a decision within seconds and, and it's all all nearly as invisible as possible yeah well I'm conscious of your time um, do you have any parting words for the audience don't know what would you say to some people who are uh, interested in, in what the future might bring and innovation and technology other than just keep going keep yeah. going at it and, and but at the same time, just, just be aware of the consequences of what you do uh-huh. <laughs> and the contribution it brings to society, to the insurance industry in general, not just to your own pocket. Uh-huh. And, and if you do it that way, then you won't have uh, uh, any problems with uh, the outcome of our work for EOPA uh-huh. in the next few years. Uh-huh.